Good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon, the lead pastor. It was great singing. Those two and under outsang the adults in my section over here. It was really good. Um, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The scripture we're going to read, or I'm going to read for you, and you follow along in the copy of God's Word that you have in front of you, is uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 12, this morning's message. Um, we're going to focus on verses 11 and 12, and we're going to learn how to fight this morning, okay? That's what I hope that you will leave with, um, learning how to fight, uh, because that is the language here in this passage. Um, it is very much combative, striving language. And you think, well, man, we're in church. We shouldn't learn how to fight. Well, let me ask you this as we go into this passage. Did any of you experience a battle this week? You know, those that are older, right? Near the, near the, the older end of the spectrum. Um, every stage of life has its particular struggles, right? And you could name your struggles. And those of you that, that are in the um, child-raising, child-rearing, um, did you have struggles, not only in your own life, um, in, um, with your children? Those of you that are working, is that a battle? You know, uh, don't think about tomorrow. It's Sunday, okay? But j just reflect for a moment. Don't go too far um, into that realm. But, you know, do you think everything is better over the weekend that you left it on Friday? Is it going to improve? I always wonder what happens over the weekend. There's something like you left everything in its place and all of a sudden Monday morning produces what? A struggle, right? And those of you that are teenagers, college students, um, um, young adults, are there struggles? Do you, is, is this? There are. How about as children, right? Um, you think about even a child, right, who has all these different kinds of needs but yet cannot communicate. Right? So, I mean, when you think of a child, there's some serious needs there. And the only thing is, bah, you know, that's all they can say. Like, that would be a struggle for any of us, right? Learn and learning a new language, right? It's a struggle. We're going to see that the struggle is more than those things in this passage. Um, that it's more, it's all of those. Um, but when we think about life, life is a fight. Are you equipped for the fight? Do you know how to? Because you will fight. You will fight. There will be striving. You will strive for something. You will strive for something in some way, shape, or fashion. Guaranteed. Even as you leave this place, it will happen. It's the nature of the fallen world around us. It's a battle. Let's get prepared. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says... Let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespected on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I was having a, a discussion with uh, my daughter Mimi, who's here um, earlier this week, and it was a discussion that came out of a book that I was reading and a different book that she was reading. Um, and it's a good place to, to really begin this passage um, because um, the, the author that, that she was reading, um, a, an apologist, a, a brilliant writer, um, Nancy Piercy, um, made this observation. Um, and it was a conversation and part of a, a reading that I, that I had earlier, and we talked about this, that most people, most people have either a utilitarian or materialist worldview. Most people. And what I would say from that, and I think actually Nancy Piercy um, says it, um, if not infers it, that that has affected most Christians. That most Christians have, let's just let's just stop with a utilitarian worldview, right? Utilitarian worldview looks at the world and it says, what works for me in this moment, right? So, so categories are fluid and the interpretation of scripture begins at a, a human-centered, a man-centered viewpoint and works its way to, to God. It's the wrong way to do that. Rather, we have to look at Scripture and say, it is sufficient. And we have to understand the categories that God has revealed in the Word of God because it is sufficient. We need not a utilitarian worldview um, if we are going to learn how to fight and fight the good fight of faith. Um, but we need a biblical worldview. And in order to have a biblical worldview, you have to pick up the text be a good student of the text, you have to, rather than be utilitarian, you have to utilize the categories of the Bible in order to shape your worldview, not your own categories. And so we have this section. We, I read the entire passage. I, I, I started at the beginning of the chapters. The chapters are not in the original scroll um, that was written by the Apostle Paul um, to Timothy, um, but they are helpful. It ends, at the, the chapter 5 ends at an odd place, begins and picks up in chapter 6. It divides people that are in the household, so you're seeing this household hold code. In other words, what 
what Paul instructed Timothy to do was to put order to the house of God. In order for there to be order in the church, there has to be order in the home. And so Paul is giving Timothy, who is a pastor, an elder, instructions for those in the church so that there might be order in their home and hence order in the church, right? So here you have, um, and as we looked at last week, Titus chapter 2, so that is um, a passage that has some theological overlap to chapters 5 through chapter 6 and verse 2. Um, we'll come back to Titus chapter 2 on Father's Day, where we, we will look at masculine economics from Titus chapter 2. But there's some overlap there in this household code. And, and then we've, we've already um, talked about verses 3 through 10. Um, we have um, learned about these false teachers that are teaching different doctrine, and it gets to the underlying motives of those teachers in these verses prior. It is a desire. Don't get tripped up by the love of money as if money is a thing, but rather the, the real evil there that the passage points to is the desire that that comes from. It's, it's money is just simply something that gets you um, namely, most of the time, status, power, it gets you what you want. It, it, it satisfies, or the person thinks it's going to satisfy that desire. And there's a description of those false teachers. And then this section begins, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So you're, you'll notice in these two verses, verses 11 and 12, um, there are some commands but I want to pause here when we think about just this utilitarian worldview. Um, we want to bring this and make sure that we're looking at biblical categories here. All right, so in some way, I'm showing my work here. I'm getting down into a little bit into the nitty-gritty of this. But I think it's important. It addresses, oh man of God. Right? So when we look at this passage and we say we do what we call traveling instructions, we have to go back and say, what did the author intend? What did the hearers hear? Before we can get to what does this mean for us today? In order for, we have to look and say, well, this, there's, some, there's something particular here. He's writing to who? Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy. Now, this is the inspired word of God, right? This is different than just a letter we might jet off to someone else or an email we might jet. This is the inspired word of God. So, so these categories are important. He's, he's writing to Timothy, who is what? He is a man. And he is an elder. Right? So there's some implications of the fact that he is addressing this. His, his role is to put order in the say, to, the, to the church here. Part of that is to make sure there are other elders, other elders who are like him as described in earlier passages. Right? So there's some implications of these, of these categories. Namely, there should be implications in the application to elders and to men. Okay, so as you think and as you do your own study in the passage, think through those categories. Does that mean we are excluding women? It's not a trick question. Okay, good. I was a little, when I ask these questions sometimes, and I really do want you to respond, sometimes I'm fearful that I ask 
like unclear question. So I was hoping that that one was clear. It was. You said no, because the application, this is the word of God, which means it's written to all Christians in all places at all times. But we have to understand what it says. So that is, that ought to be the overarching understanding. Oh, man of God. This is an Old Testament phrase. Actually, you go back in the Old Testament. So there's this unique way that Paul is using this phrase. You can go back and see that it was used of, um, uh, of many different individuals, mainly Moses, but, um, but many others. Oftentimes, they were the mediatorial voice of God for Israel, before they had the scriptures in, in full, some in part, but it was, it was, they were addressed, oh man of God. That's really important. He's using this Old Testament passage. When we move through um, 1 Timothy, we're actually going to move into the Psalms, and we're going to do a survey of the Psalms this summer. And the reason is, I want to get into a book in the New Testament, that its very outline is based on one of the Psalms contains the most quotations and allusions to the Psalms. It's very important that we understand our Old Testament um, because it's not an Old Testament as if dusty and we don't need it anymore and we can, because that's not the way Jesus uses his Old Testament. It's not the way that the New Testament authors use that. It's very important, this phrase, oh man of God, this elder had particular authority in that church. God's holding him accountable for that authority. And he's to give instructions. I know authority is a hot topic, but oftentimes in the church, biblical authority, pastoral authority, is often the lowest and dismissed by many. Here, Paul is saying, no, here he's saying, this is the word of the Lord. Now handle it, Timothy. You're the man of God. So you can feel this weight. He says, but as for you, O man of God, now I want to begin at the end here. I want to begin at the end because I think the end, um, verse 12, is the main thrust of this small section. Um, and the how is in verse 11. O man of God, fight the good fight of faith. He's telling him to fight the good fight of faith. The, the next is to take hold. That's, that is, that's the goal and objective of the fight. That is the next or last command um, there to fight and take, take hold. Um, but he's telling him as a man to fight and take hold. You know, why won't men fight the good fight? I think that's a legitimate question to ask of this passage. The Apostle Paul assumes that Timothy needs some instruction, right? Because he's telling him to fight the fight. Right? Parents, don't you do this, right? Your kids are leaving and, and you tell them, right? Drive safely. And they go, Dad, what do you think I'm going to do? Like, drive down our street at 90 miles an hour. You tell me that every time I leave, right? right? There's this, there is this concern, right, that, that the Apostle Paul has. There's a concern there that 
needs to be addressed. Well, why won't men fight the good fight? Oftentimes, um, maybe with Timothy, it is a lack of confidence or a fear of man. I think all of these reasons are rooted here in our text. Some of them are small roots. Some of them, I think, are tap roots. There's probably more that you can find on your own study. But I think as well, it's, there's, a, there's a lack of contentment, right? So there's this lack of contentment, this maybe fear of the future. And, and so when there's a, a fear of the future, oftentimes um, we look for security in certain places and where Paul wants Timothy to find his security is not in other gods, but in the God. And so oftentimes men don't fight the good fight because there is no vision for the future or their vision is only on themselves. I think one of the reasons that men don't fight the good fight is because fighting in our day has become quarrelsome. The text says that was true of that day as well. And the fight is not a good one. In other words, there's no goal or there's no end in the pursuit. Right? There's no goal or there's no end in the pursuit. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here. It's good. Um, and you're going to go, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's something missing. Well, there's not. We'll get to it. It's it's actually, I'll give you a clue, it's gentleness, okay? Um, it's in the text, and we're going to get to it. It's one of the major points of the text. But men were designed in a certain way. They were actually designed for battle. They were actually designed to fix things. There's got to be a goal. There's got to be an objective. There's got to be a finish line. There, there has to be something to do because that's how God is part of masculinity is part of how he designed us right there there's a problem to solve there's a battle to win that that's the design from the text when looking at the the text that comes before us oftentimes fighting can be this kind of quarrelsome empty words in other words um, it can come from a place of pride that ends up being emotional manipulation and most men I would include women as well but most men want to have nothing to do with this the apologist Neil Shenvey calls this the dangerous culture of apology John Piper calls it emotional blackmail Abigail Dodds um, expresses it this way she says in other words when we turn our empathy inward, we lure others to fix their eyes on our circumstances, wanting them to join us in our wallowing and nothing else. We want them to internalize our emotions, but refuse them the right to their own perspective that might differ from ours. We aren't content with their genuine sympathy and become horribly offended if they were to offer a solution to our pain or problems, how dare they think they could help me? They have no idea what it is to suffer like I do. Empathy turned inward actually doesn't want help. It wants to sit on the throne in the place of God. In other words, oftentimes people in a quarrel don't actually want a solution. Now, this doesn't exclude that character of gentleness that we'll get to, right? doesn't exclude that. But oftentimes, a fight is just simply emotional 
manipulation. So let's learn to fight the good fight. Let's start with that. We learn in this passage that we must fight the good fight of faith. The word fight translated means struggle. Um, It's agonizomai, right? To agonize. Um, you, You can hear that. The Christian walk, all of life, the Christian walk as well is agony. Paul uses this as a metaphor, a military and athletic metaphor that describes the Christian life. To strive is what it means. Right? So we tend to think of this word fight only in a negative sense. But we always are in a struggle. We always are fighting. So it's a matter of how we do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, we read this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? But that's not fair. Everybody should get a ribbon. Oh, wait, that's not there. I wasn't in family devotions. I need to preach. Sometimes I add those to see if my kids are paying attention. It says, only one receives a prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive something that's perishable. But we have a higher prize, something that is imperishable. It's the aim of our life, so we don't run aimlessly. Paul says he does not box as one simply beating the air, but there's a target. He disciplines his body to keep it under control. We are are to strive and struggle in the Christian faith just like an athlete strives in the gymnasium. It's a striving. It's not a trying. It's a training. It's a training. It's a struggle. Listen um, to what? Paul instructs Timothy earlier in this letter in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. It says, I charge, I charge, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. I can remember somewhere in my education, one of my teachers saying, Oh, we should never from the pulpit use warfare metaphors. We don't want to be like that kind of a religion. We shouldn't use warfare metaphors because we want to use peaceable metaphors. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea for a long time. But wait a minute. Isn't that utilitarian? Does the Bible use those categories? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So I began to think about that this this week. I've thought about it before because I've used those kinds of metaphors. But maybe we need to press a little harder into this because if this is if this is the word of God and it's sufficient and it's helpful for us, then we ought to press into these kinds of things. I, I wonder why that is. Why is it that we feel the need not to go where the Bible takes us? I'm tempted to give several answers, but let me just ask this. If the Bible says that we are to fight, and the fight is the good fight, the good fight of faith, are you fighting? 
we strive in? Or is the only goal leisure and ease? You still will struggle. But is your aim the good fight of faith? Yes, we must fight against temptation and unbelief. We must contend with the world, the evil one, his schemes, even our own flesh. It's all a fight. And here's the aim, he says next, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of, e of eternal life. What does Paul mean when he commands Timothy to take hold of eternal life? Doesn't Timothy already have it? The answer is yes. At the moment that someone believes in Jesus, they take hold of eternal life. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You were sealed until you what? Possess it. Until you lay hold of it to the praise of his glory. So you have eternal life by way of promise and inheritance, but you haven't fully taken possession of it. And so here he's saying to Timothy, this fight is to take hold of what you already have, to pers persevere, to fight to the end, to the very end, to your last breath, to your dying day. God preserves all that are his. If someone's saved, they, they are saved. The way that God preserves all that are his, or part of the way, is by commanding them to persevere and empowering them by his grace to obey. Notice that eternal life was the thing to which Timothy was called. Timothy, just like you and me, was called to faith in Christ so that he would have life everlasting. And this was the thing that Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think this is a reference to Timothy's baptism, to where he testified to what Jesus Christ had done for him. And he made that public, this public profession of faith and commitment to follow Jesus to the end. Now consider this. The pressures on Timothy to turn back were probably very great. You know, we should not forget that the person writing this was in prison. He would be imprisoned again. Eventually, he would be killed for his faith in Christ. Don't underestimate the pressures that Timothy felt. Don't underestimate the dangers. And remember that the dangers help us better appreciate Paul's exhortation to Timothy and even to us to persevere. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. While the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is God's word, encouraging us to fight. So how do we do this? Come on, Pastor, you've spent a lot of time.
Tell me how. Here we go. Verse 11 in the text, it says that we learn that this man of God, this elder, needs to do two things, flee and pursue, right? So um, to fight the good fight, we have to fight and take hold, but we also have to flee and pursue. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are all things, these are, these are commanded, and they're commanded because he's in a battle, um, there, is, there is a battle. There's an interesting book um, that is written. It's called Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. Why Men Fight When All Is, is Lost. Um, the, the idea of last stands is the fact that um, these last stands that are famous are often battles within a larger campaign that were lost, but the battle was won. And so the question is, why at these last stands did these men, when there was no apparent hope, why did they fight to the last man till the last man stood, even gave his life? The author says this, they fight for themselves, for their brothers in arms, and therefore for their women and children and their country, which is the expression of the family. Without women, there are no children. Without children, there are no, there is no future. That's what they fought for. So knowing how and understanding the language of the scripture, this is a battle. Now I say this is this is why Paul says, oh man of God, and even he challenges the men in this room, not to the exclusion of the women by way of application but in particular to the men and to the elders to fight till the last man. He says this, here's how, flee these things. Flee these things. There's many things to flee in the Christian life, but you'll notice that the the verse there in um, verse 11 says, but as for you, O man of God, flee. It's a contrast to what comes before this. Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. He has in mind the things that he just warned about in the, in the passage in particular. We could talk about lots of things Scripture says to flee from. But here, this passage says some things in particular to this man, to this elder, to these men, to this church. He says, flee these things. These things are what? Is false teaching, which false teaching comes from a false worldview, which, which comes from from the worship of gods that are not God. And so they need to flee what? They need to flee the desire, not simply for material gain, but material gain and what it will gain for them. Right? It's wealth is not a bad thing. Wealth is a good lever. I, I would say we, we are not a health and wealth prosperity gospel church okay get that okay okay that's good you're with me right we're not but your pastor will tell you that you should be accumulating wealth and using it for god's glory and to love your 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 neighbor to love your brothers and sisters it is a good thing but here it's saying what 
the, it is the desire, it is the corrupt desire for what money or status or material things will gain you. That's what is wrong. That's what's wrong. And, and, but, so you have kind of the, the sin, right? Right? So, for instance, for example, what material things gain for you. When I was growing up, I know this dates me, but when I was growing up, I wanted a members-only jacket. Right? Okay, so the laughter is like, oh, yes, you, some of you were in that. You know, it just had said members-only and had that weird collar and... I had the, yeah, had the loops on the shoulders, and it was really dorky, <laughs> right? But I had the knockoff brand that my mom probably got at Goodwill, right, that said, like, I don't know, friends only, or I don't know what it said. It just said something that was not members. Why? You know, it's not bad to have good things and nice things and brand name things. It's not bad. But why did I want that? Because I wanted to be like my peers. I wanted the status of wearing that jacket. I remember, like, my friend had one, and it was a hot summer day, and, like, he was, like, pitted out through the jacket, but he wouldn't take the jacket off. That's how important that was. You see, that's what he's getting at. It's the status. Why is that? Why, why do we do that? Because it's a lack of contentment. He said contentment, right, coupled with godliness is what? Great gain. But there's a fear there that drives this desire towards power, money, status. It's a fear. And what happens is there, that what ends up, these are the passages I'm summarizing what came before this, is there is a prideful, quarrelsome disposition of false teachers. And he says, flee these things. Flee these things. Right? Because your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and what he has done. That is our hope. There is no other God. And when there are these quarrelsome fights that are not the good fight of faith, when you see people doing that, it means that there is a discontentment that comes from an idolatry and a striving because when we are not content in God, there is this, the world is shifting, the sand is moving, there is no foundation. And what do we, we start striving, not for the aim of that which Jesus Christ has secured. And we are to possess, in which we are guaranteed to possess, but we start striving after all kinds of other things. And money is just one means of trying to get at those things that will fail us. And he says here, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You have a problem? I guarantee if you meet with a good counselor... They're going to be able to help you, and it's on you, not them, to walk that back through, and you're going to find that while there might be some other things that are contributing, there's some other peripheral factors that are real, you're going to find that there is a root in sinfulness 
And the only way to root that out is confession and forgiveness in the work of Jesus. Flee these things. So to fight means we have to flee. But then we also have to pursue very quickly. Pursue, and he says here, there's three real categories. Righteousness and godliness, faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness, personal virtue, public virtue, and attitudinal virtue. Pursue these things. These would make a great discussion because we're running out of time in your family to talk about what does it mean to pursue um, these things, to pursue these things, these, this personal virtue of righteousness and godliness, public virtue of faith and love, attitudinal virtue of steadfast and gentleness. So we are called to pursue these things. First, he says, pursue righteousness, pursue righteousness. And some people think that um, all Christians do is run away from evil, and that's that. But here he says, pursue this. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives instructions to put off certain things and put on certain things. And so we are to pursue righteousness. The scripture teaches clearly that no one but Christ is righteous, but Jesus Christ has given us his righteousness. And Paul here is not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that we have in salvation, but rather personal righteousness. Personal righteousness. Having been made righteous by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, Timothy was to pursue righteousness, that he was to strive with everything in him to live right before God. It is right living before God. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, um, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under Grace, pursue right living before God. Second, um, he says, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. Um, we've talked about godliness. Godliness is a right understanding of doctrine. Can I nuance that? It is right worship. It is an understanding of how to worship God. That, so godliness is a right understanding of how to worship God. That bears fruit in right living. It's a couple together. Uh, an old word, and I think this is something for us to um, think about, because I thought about it as I heard Kelly's testimony. All of these testimonies that you've heard, right, in pursuing joy is godliness, an old word that would describe, I think, all of the vision videos that maybe we should talk about more and maybe we should bring, bring back is the word piety. Piety. It's, it's a good old word. We're bringing piety back, right? We need to because piety produces joy. It's godliness at its root. And he says pursue faith. Pursue faith. Faith is reality. So these are public virtues, faith and love. Faith says this is what the world looks like. I'm not worshiping other gods. My confidence is, is not in other gods. Um, but my confidence is in the God of all, the creator of the universe, the redeemer. 
Um, so he says, pursue faith. Understand how the world works in line with the way God has revealed it to you. Pursue a deep trust. In fact, that is what he says, fight the fight, the good fight of what? Faith. The good fight of faith. Have a worldview based on the revelation of God in the word of God that tells you how you and this world ex works, how it came into existence, what the categories are and what the categories are not. Let the Bible define your dictionary. And then he says, pursue love too. Pursue love too. You know what happens in our world is if you don't agree with someone's reality, we live in an age of abandonment, defriending, and canceling. We live in a world that says, you know what, if I don't agree with you, I'm going to get up and walk away. I'm not even going to listen to your argument. We live in a world that says, unless you feel like I feel, I, I, don't have, I won't have anything to do with you. But here, Paul says, in the good fight, you're to pursue love. Pursue love. Listen what he says in John chapter 4, verse 7. You see, Christians are not afraid of disagreements, right? The, the world has this thing called canceling, and it's, you know, it's, it's there, it exists, but it has seeped into our culture so that we say, hey, if you don't do for me what I want you to do, and if you don't see the world the way I want you to see the world or the way that I see the world, then I am done. I'm getting up, I'm walking out, I'm done. Christians in love are not afraid of disagreement. Listen, John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This, in this love, of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We're to love, right? To love is to desire to maintain unity. Unity does not come without boundaries, but unity does not come without love. So we, these outward virtues, public virtues, faith and love. And, and then finally, there are, um, there are some other virtues here that he mentions, steadfastness and, and gentleness. Steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness is the ability to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Um, to be steadfast is to endure in the face of difficulty. Someone told you that Jesus died to make your life easy. They lied. Jesus died to make you holy. He died to reconcile you to the Father. He died so that you might have life eternal. He was honest. 
And he spoke to his disciples saying this in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And those men that he spoke those words to were killed for their faith. We must pursue steadfastness, but we will not obtain it if we do not first have public faith and public love. You cannot be steadfast unless you say, this is what the world is according to God's reality revealed in the word of God, and you learn to exhibit love publicly. You will not be steadfast. You will not be steadfast. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Right? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, that's what allows you to hang in there in the fight is that you have hope, and in that hope, you have what? Joy. See, joy is to en enters this good fight of faith. There is no other striving that such great a joy will enter into. I'll say amen to that. But this fight, you rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. He says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our sufferings do what? Produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, in these times where dissension is in vogue, Christians ought to stay together. If we don't, then we fail to offer the hope of Jesus to the world. You see, sometimes the fight isn't necessarily outside of these walls. Sometimes the fight is inside these walls. But God has given us the gospel, good news in that we have hope, the hope of the glory of God. And so even in our striving, we rejoice and even in our suffering we rejoice and we do what we continue to speak the reality of who god is and his love into our community of faith and into our families of faith and as a result into the world we have this joyful hope and guess what here's this guarantee hope does not put us to shame why don't we fight sometimes the good fight of faith we're afraid of being shamed but here you have a promise. If you hope in Jesus and you live that publicly, you will not be put to shame. I'm going to put a bookmark in there. My time's up. I wanted to talk about how we cultivate steadfastness. We'll leave that. But add to all of this gentleness. Gentleness. It says gentleness in the passage. Here's, here's the, the truth is those that are harsh tend to be inwardly weak. They're harsh because they're afraid. They're harsh because they're immature and insecure. We need to encourage one another. We need to encourage one another with gentleness so that we can mature in our faith, to have strong faith. 
sincere love, steadfastness of spirit, and gentleness. Pursue gentleness. Listen to these passages as we close. And then what I want to do is close by simply reading the rest of that passage through verse 16. And then call you to respond in the table of communion. Listen to this about gentleness. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you have a disagreement, if you think the person's in the wrong, what does a Christian do? Walk away? Is that what the Bible says? No. In a spirit of gentleness, restore them. Bring them to the truth. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul himself says this to the church at Thessalonica, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul ends this section on warfare, striving and fighting by saying this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and to flee from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see him. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.